Welcome to this week's edition of Island Recast. For more information on Grand Memorial Presbyterian Church or Pastor David, please go to gmpc.org. So I'm all messed up this morning. I I wear a watch and the battery died like a week ago, but I keep wearing it to remind myself to get the battery fixed. (laughs) And I keep forgetting that it's broken. And that's why I walked in here. Oh, we're starting. And then I know during that prayer, it's supposed to be you guys all pray together. I stole your prayers. There we go. (laughs) So let's see if the Lord can recover this sermon. All right, saints, turn to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. And we're actually going to be reading uh, verses 14 through 39. It's a little bit larger of a section, but that's because uh, I want to give a context. This is a big picture sermon. Um, there's going to be a lot of scripture passages, so please keep your Bibles open uh, to be looking down. You don't have to turn to every passage, but it is helpful to kind of see that this is God's word, that it's everywhere, the things I'm going to be talking about. Let me start with, uh, before we read Mark chapter 1, verse 14 through 39, giving you a context, so this will make a little bit more sense. The context is this. Israel itself as a nation and a kingdom was pretty amazing. Uh, a lot of times we have this idea of the kingdom of Israel as like maybe a Bible story and, and, and it's, uh, you know, got King David. And, um, but we need to scratch that. We need to get a real understanding of the historical Jerusalem. You can actually go to Jerusalem right now and it's still there. It's not ruins. You're not going to Ephesus and there's just a bunch of blocks where, the, oh, this used to be a great city. No, Jerusalem's still there. And it was a great city. It was a, a, think about King David with all his, his might and his pomp and the, the number of uh, soldiers that he had. And think about just geographically. It, it was the largest, the kingdom of Israel was the largest under Solomon, his, King David's son. Think about this. It was roughly at the apex about 100 miles wide. So you're talking here to El Centro, having to drive over the hills. And then my family just drove up to the Bay Area last week, which is 500 miles. And that's how far it was south to north. So 100 miles wide, 500 miles long. It was a real kingdom. And they had real governments. And they had organized. And they had armies to defend them. America is coming up on, what, 250 years? We're babies compared to Israel. Israel was, they were strong from about 1,000 B.C. to up to 500 B.C. That's 500 years. And, and, and they were a legit, real kingdom. There was pride there. Now, some of you are, are, know the Bible. In the last 500 years, from about 586 B.C. Um, to, to Jesus' time, wasn't so good. Um, They went under captivity. First, it was the Babylonian captivity, then the Persians, then Alexander the Great, and then uh, finally in Jesus' time, the Romans. What this captivity looked like is is they didn't have rule of the land. They still could practice. They still could worship at the temple. But even the temple was destroyed for a time. And on every corner was these guards. They really could feel that they were invaded and the, the glory they once had had slipped from their hands. And then you might even know the last 400 years. The last 400 years before Jesus is known as what? The silent years. 
Not only had they lost their land and all the glory of the power of the kingdom and their armies, but God quit speaking. He quit sending prophets to them, and they're known as the silent years. I, I want us to feel this because you, the Bible is real. It's not just stories. It's real. It happened in time. 2,000 years ago, this message came to the people. We have a hard time, in order for us to be able to get this, think about this. Since World War II, America really has kind of been a premier nation. One of the powerhouses of the entire world, of all the nations. That was 76 years ago. Most of us in this room have only known America as being one of the greatest nations on the planet, one of the most powerful nations on the planet, one of the most influential, most protected, most equipped nations. Now imagine this. Imagine if it's all gone. Imagine if we've been overtaken. Imagine if on every corner there's, there's guards with AK-47s. We're allowed to go about our business, but we're always under the hand. And we, we, imagine we had that feeling of knowing what we once were, and now this is what we're at now. That's just a sliver of what these Israelites really felt. What they really felt when Jesus comes in, in Mark chapter, four, chapter 1, verse 14. That's their situation. Now hear the word of the Lord. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came in the Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat mending the nets. And immediately he called to them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who actually had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was a, there in a synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. And he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once fame spread about him everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told her about him. Uh, him about her, and he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left, and she began to serve them. And that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick and oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Verse 35, and rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed, and Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him. And they said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. And he went through all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues 
and casting out the demons. This is God's word. And this, is a, this passage to us this morning is really a reevaluation passage. It's a passage that causes us to look as individuals and as a church-wide to reevaluate our lives. We do this all the time. Uh, organizations do it. They get together and they put all the cards on the table and they, they look at where they're spending their money, where they're spending their time, what projects are they investing in. Individuals as families, we do it. We say, I've got life, I've got work, I've got finances, vacation, health. And we say, are, are we doing right? Are we on track? And if not, we, we reorganize. Because drift happens, doesn't it? We might have like the, uh, be on track in the beginning and have the right priorities, but we can find ourselves drifting, find ourselves way off course. Or another thing, we could have just been totally wrong from the get-go to start with. This reminds me of this illustration um, that I heard one pastor talk about. It was a, a family reunion like we've all had and we go to, where you have all the, the, the aunts and the uncles and the, the parents and the grandparents. And there is this one family reunion where you had four generations, great-grandmother, the grandmother, the daughter, and then the grandchild. And they were in the kitchen and they're cooking great-grandmother's pot roast. It was a famous pot roast. Everybody in the family absolutely loved it. They looked forward to it. And the little girls, the, the fourth generation, were, could barely look over the counter, but they were watching their mother and grandmother cook this pot roast and learning so that they could one day do it too. Well, the, the, the mother takes a big knife and cuts off three inches of the pot roast and throws it away. And the little girls ask the question, rightfully so, why? What are, you, what are you doing? And the mother says, well, that's how my mother taught me to cook it. And the grandmother is there, and the kids ask grandma, well, why do you do this? Well, she says, that's how, my great or that's how your great-grandmother taught me to cook it. And that's how we make it. Well, they go into the living room. There's 90 pounds of great-grandmother sitting there in the chair, just silent. And the little girls walk up to her, and they say, great-grandmother, please tell us, why do you cut off the three inches of the pot roast? She says, well, I don't know why they do it. I didn't have a pan big enough. <laughs> This, this, this is funny, but it's true. Why do we do the things we do? Do we ever sit back and reevaluate? This happens in churches all the time. We'll have programs that have been going on. How long have we been doing this program? 20 years. Why do we do the order of service this way? Why do we uh, have this ministry going? Why not this ministry? This is the way that we do it. And a lot of times it was started by a generation before. And we don't know why, or, or, or maybe we just were wrong all the way from the get-go. So what I want to ask as a church, and every church should do this, ask ourselves after we look at this passage and we see really Jesus is going to show us his mission of what's going on. He's going to show us the big picture of the mission and then what we ought to be doing. We need to reevaluate as a church, are we on track? And if maybe you're not a Christian, maybe, maybe you've just always cut off the three inches. Maybe it's just never been in your family to consider Christianity. Maybe you've never really actually taken the time to evaluate and listen and read the scriptures. But this is a reevaluation for us all. How we're going to do that is we're going to look at these three points. Do we understand about the kingdom of God? Do we understand what the mission of Jesus is and therefore the church is? And then third, do we understand how we carry out that mission? Make sense? I need my water. Sorry. 
So do we understand the kingdom of God? If I was to ask you, uh, do you ever think about the kingdom of God? Like, that, does that cross your mind? What would your answer be? Probably not. Some of you, for sure, definitely, you do. I, for me, it, was, it wasn't much. I, I say it, we think about it, we, we might uh, uh, pray about it, but something very interesting in here. Watch this. And I, I discovered this when I was preparing the sermon, and then it was just everywhere. Verse 14, Jesus comes in, and this is the inauguration of his, his earthly ministry. This is the beginning. This is when he sets the stage. He proclaims the mission. He says, the time is for, uh, at hand. Here is the gospel. Gospel means good news. Here's the good news. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. The good news, saints, that Jesus had is that the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God at hand means you can reach it. It's here. It, your, your NIV version probably says near. The kingdom of God is near. Verse 21 uh, uh, through 28, he goes into the church in the synagogue, which is a, a, a gathering just like this. And what does he do? He starts teaching. And what is it that he's teaching? It says he's proclaiming the kingdom of God. And so anytime he's teaching, it's something he's regularly talking about, the kingdom of God. He doesn't stop this. It's the, here in the beginning uh, of his ministry. But if you turn to John chapter 18, where Jesus is talking to Pilate at the end of his earthly ministry, close to three years later, he's also again talking to Pilate about the kingdom of God. And then you start thumbing through all the Gospels and it's all over in the scriptures, the kingdom of God. When he grabs onto these disciples and he sends them out in Luke chapter 10, it says he sent his disciples out. And this is what he told his disciples to tell the people. Tell the people that the kingdom of God is near. That's the good news, that the kingdom of God is near. Uh, so he, he, Jesus is constantly teaching about it. He gets his disciples to teach about it. He also uh, explains it. I'm going to turn to Matthew chapter 13. L listen to this. He, he spends time talking about and explaining the kingdom of God. Uh, Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. He says, the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, same thing, is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered it up. Then he, then he, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Jesus goes on again, verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and he bought it. And he has many more parables talking about the kingdom of God. He also, in the scriptures, relates a person's place. He points out a person's place as their relation to the kingdom of God is signifying where they will spend eternity. If you're in the kingdom of God, then you're going to spend eternity with him. If you're outside, if your relationship to the kingdom of God is outside, then it's weeping and gnashing of teeth and great judgment. You know some of these passages, Matthew 7, 7, Sermon on Mount. Jesus says, you know, many on that great day are going to say to me, Lord, Lord. He's going to say, get away from me, you workers of unrighteousness. You didn't really submit to the kingdom. You didn't love the king. It's coming. He says, you may not enter the kingdom of God. Uh, Paul's going to do this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, hey, I, I don't want you to be unaware. I don't want you to be deceived. Those who work and do these things 
uh, adultery, fornication, greed, lust, homosexuality, uh, disobedience will not enter the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is, if you're in the kingdom, you're in Christ. You have eternity. If you're outside the kingdom, it's everywhere. My point in this is just to show that it's all over the scriptures. Then why don't we think about it? Why don't we talk about it? Why don't we even know about it? I got to do a sidebar real quick because here's the thing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to at least begin to unravel the idea of the kingdom of God. Give us a foundation that you need to dive deeper into on your own time and in future studies. But here's a sidebar. This happened 2,000 years ago that Jesus came and proclaimed that the kingdom of God is near. Such a cultural difference, such a different context that they are in. Uh, my wife is from Alabama, and I, my previous church, I was served in a church in South Carolina. And I just showed up there, and we were going to have a church picnic like you guys often do. And the staff was meeting. And I said, why don't we just do a barbecue? And one of the elders there, salty old guy, maybe 75 years old, was, was giving me all this gruff about having this barbecue, saying, no, no, I can't do a barbecue. I'm like, wait, it's hot dogs and hamburgers. After 15 minutes, I realized when he says barbecue, he's not talking hot dogs and hamburgers. He's talking a big old pig. He's talking 10, 12 hours. And later on, I was there for four years. We did this barbecue and he slept at the church because all night he had to keep turning it. So no wonder. And that's just Alabama to here, South Carolina to here. This is 2000 years ago. That he's talking about the kingdom. When was the last time you and I had a discussion with our spouse or our kids about kingdoms? We don't use that language, do we? So when they heard the word kingdom, it painted a whole picture in their minds, right? Kind of like this. If I say 9-11, doesn't it paint a picture in your mind? What about this? COVID. Oh, that's going to paint a picture for the rest of your life. When they heard the word kingdom, it painted a picture. They could see things. They could feel things. They remembered things. At least three things that kind of came to their mind when they heard the word kingdom. One is all-consuming. All-consuming. It invaded every aspect of life. We don't have kingdoms, but we have corporations. When I tell you Amazon, you get the idea. Amazon started off as a bookstore, but now you can order clothes. You can order, or, order baby uh, stuff off it. We listen to our music on Amazon. We watch TV on Amazon. Amazon's going to start flying us food Soon, Amazon does everything for us. It's all-consuming. Well, kingdom was all-consuming. It had land. It had an economy. It had rules. It had rulers. It had a real presence. They also associated with a kingdom, a king. A king. king kingdoms were not democracy, saints. They weren't, they weren't the rule of the people. There was a one king, one ruler, and he was powerful and mighty. And whatever he said, up or down, it went. And you didn't question the king. You had ideas of Caesar and Alexander the Great or King David. So you, it was all consuming. There was a king. And then there was also this understanding of this fear because it was all consuming military power that either subdued or disposed of all of its enemies. This wasn't the season, the time of life where they, they could fight their battles with drones where they could push a button miles away and, and fight these battles. No, the, the, the towns could hear and feel the, the, the 
footprints of the horse as they came marching on. They could see the dust clouds rising. They could see the valley filled with tens of thousands of soldiers. And the women would, would run for the hills and grab their babies. And the men would shake and quiver at the sight of this kingdom that would come. They had the understanding that blood would run for anybody that disobeyed the kingdom. So that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's not talking about, when we talk about the kingdom, a lot of times it's in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, which I forgot to have us read, forgive me. He, thy kingdom come, we're thinking, Lord, your kingdom come, help people be honest, help people be righteous, help there be good laws, help it be nice, precious moments. No, he's talking about mighty warrior at the gate, the kingdom is at the door, lay down your arms. And it did come. And the kingdom is here. 2,000 years ago, everything changed. I'll discuss that more, that challenge for us to get that. But we don't want to miss this either. We can't miss this. Uh, verse 14, it starts off, you, you can seem to pass it over real quick. Now after John was arrested. And Jesus in verse 15 says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. You and I cannot overestimate the anticipation that the Israelites had for a change to come, for a king to come, for God himself to come and subdue and rule all their enemies. We cannot overestimate. It, 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 it's, it was in their minds. It was taught. They longed for it as they had uh, the foreign persecution over them. They longed for this. 700 years earlier, the prophet Isaiah, on, at God's bidding, prophesied this. In Isaiah 40, he says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your Lord. Your warfare has ended. He's saying there's going to be a time of peace. Tell the people there's going to be a time of peace. I know you're struggling now. I know it's hard. I know you have enemies. I know the kingdom's falling apart. But I comfort them. Your warfare is going to be ended. He says, go up on the mountain and herald the good news, the, the gospel. Behold, the Lord comes with might and his arm rules for him. His mighty arm, that was a picture in the Old Testament of his arm, his strength, his sword, his might to come to rule. And it says, not only is he he's strong, but it says he will tend his flocks like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He, the people that are waiting, these Israelites are waiting for a king who's going to come in, who's going to love them and care for them, God himself. So there's also this promise of this loving God, but there's also a, a promise of that power and conquering kingdom that was also coming. You may know the scriptures from Psalm 2. This was written and proclaimed. And the people would recite this in their church, in their synagogues, even as the guards of the foreign nations stood outside. And they would recite this. They'd say, why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. The people hate God. They reject God. They don't love God and they don't love his people. They don't love his ways. They think he's, he's intolerant. They think he's awful. They think he's pushy and, and self-absorbed. They hate God. And, and he says, he who sits in heaven laughs. The people knew that although the, the enemies hated him and they, they wanted nothing to do with him, God was up there in heaven and he laughs. And the Lord holds them in derision. He holds them guilty. And then God says he will speak to them in his wrath and he will terrify them with his fury. 
And he'll say, as for me, I will set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And listen to this. Verse 9, Psalm 2, he says, This king, you shall break them with the rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. I know this is bold and it's uncomfortable language. The Bible is uncomfortable. People ran away from Jesus. People rejected it. It was at the end of Jesus' life, he only had 120 people following him. Guess what? It's very disturbing. It's very difficult, but it's truth. He says that we are under this punishment. There's these enemies and a king is coming, a rod. Saints, have you lifted up a crowbar? And what's he, he's talking about, the, he's, he's figuratively speaking, but also in real time, taking that crowbar and smashing the shins of his enemies. If they do not bow the knee, they will be broken at the knee. And this king is coming, and this is what the people were longing for. And also, it's all over the Old Testament. Second Samuel says that a king will come from the seed of David that will sit on the throne of David. But here's the difference. His kingdom will have no end. He won't die. His kingdom will not be conquered by Alexander the Great or the Romans. It will go on forever. So this is what they anticipated. This is what they were longing for, those 500 years, those 400 silent years. But when was this coming? How long, O oh Lord? Well, the scriptures even tell us. They tell us. In Isaiah, it says, it's going to come when you hear the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make way the path of the Lord. And in Malachi, right before the 400 years, it says, you will know that great and awesome day of the Lord will come when a prophet like Elijah comes. And who is John the Baptist? The one crying in the wilderness. So when you see John the Baptist is here and Jesus says, now John has been arrested, John has come and John has gone, green light, the time is fulfilled. There is no more any waiting. The kingdom that you've been waiting for and the king is at hand. So that's the kingdom. That, that's, and it's here and it's come. 2,000 years ago, the world has changed forever. And, and this is, God is not silent anymore. He is present. The kingdom of God has come. And the king is Jesus and his people have no fear. Some of us get this and that comforts our hearts. That gets us, we believe in this and others of us don't. And even those of us that get it, we still sometimes don't, right? Why? Because we say, where are you, God? For us who are his saints, who are his fathers, we say, where are you in this brokenness, in my pain, in the, the corruption that I see going on? How long, O oh Lord? And then those who don't believe in God, that don't give two cents about him, say, where is your God? Where is that God that you're waiting for? You've been following, do you have friends and, and family that say that to you? How long are you going to wait, you idiot? And I get it, but it doesn't look like the kingdom has come. It doesn't look like the kingdom has come. We see the atrocities, we see the suffering, we see the, the wars. But get this, saints, we're not alone that we are confused about Jesus' message. We're not alone that we're confused about the kingdom of God is here and it's present. Even John the Baptist that said, Behold the Lamb of God who can take away the sins of the world. Behold, the one that comes up after me, he will baptize you with fire. He later on is arrested and he sends his messengers to Jesus. He says, well, go to Jesus and ask him, are, are you the one? Because I'm in jail. Are you the one or do we wait for another? And then the disciples, they, they, 
they totally didn't believe in anything. We're, and, and after Jesus has ascended, they are like, okay, now are you going to take over the Romans and, and totally smash them and give us our kingdom back? And then, so we get this, yes, Jesus has come, but look at our king. He doesn't come mighty warrior, he comes on a donkey. He doesn't come and conquer the Romans, he dies on their cross. And yes, he's raised from the dead, but even his followers are crucified. 2,000 years ago, are we winning? Do we have the power? Is his kingdom reigning? Has he taken the bar and smashed his enemies? Maybe his kingdom didn't come. Maybe there's still more. What I want to do is, I want, I, I, this doesn't seem exciting. That's why we don't talk about the kingdom. It, does, it seems very unrealistic. It seems like it's not here. It seems fairy tale. That's why we don't focus on it and talk about it. Let me just for a second step back, give us a larger picture. Here's a larger picture what we have to understand and how we have to start living, believing this. God created the heavens and the earth. There's no other God. There's only one, uh, one God. He created all things out of nothing by the word of his power. He created all things good. He created us. Humanity has the apex of his creation in his image to rule on this planet like him, but to serve him. And yet we disobeyed him against Adam and that caused everything to be broken. Broken. It caused our nature to be broken. We now are sinful. We don't, aren't born loving God. We aren't born worshiping God. Even when we find out about God, we're constantly turning to other idols. It causes the world to hate each other. It causes, uh, instead of fruit being uh, uh, grown up, there's thorns and thistles. There's famine. There's cancer. There's awful, awful things happening. And worst off, worst off, we're under God's judgment. Because God is a righteous and holy God and all his creation deserves to worship him. As if you are a boss of your house, your employees, they need to obey you, right? Your, your kids ought to listen to you, give you some credit. How much more does God's creation owe him all obedience? But we haven't and therefore we are under his judgment and the judgment is eternal punishment. Yes, we might be okay now, have houses, health, children, jobs, things are good, live in Coronado. But scripture declares, oh, it's coming. For man is destined to live once and then die and then enter judgment. We will face God. And none of us bring to him a record that is worthy of us being able to escape that. I don't care who you are. Mother Teresa cannot go to God on her own and say, I, look at what I have done. And so God enters, though, into this agreement with Israel and this relationship with Israel. He says, OK, I'm going to show you grace. I'm going to give you all my laws. I'm going to be very specific. I'm going to show you my power. I'm going to get, show you illustrations of myself. I'm going to give you men like Moses that have beheld my face. And then you'll obey me. But could they? No, the whole Old Testament is showing that no matter how hard they tried, they could not obey God. And, and, and that was the point, to show us that we needed another solution. It wasn't plan B. God knew they could never resolve it. So God took it into his own hand to solve the problem. He brought his own arm. He said, I'm bringing my kingdom into this world. And his king, kingdom came and Christ came into the world. As Jesus said, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. And what this is, is God sends his own son into the world. And Jesus does two things while he's here on this earth. Number one is he perfectly obeys God as we ought to, but we couldn't. He earns that perfect record of righteousness that will make us acceptable to God. And then he dies the death that all of us deserve. 
That's what, because there's punishment for that. And then what happens is he starts preaching the gospel. And then he dies on the cross. Then he ascends and he says, go take this good news to the whole world. That whoever believes in me, not whoever does real good and has a good life, believe, but whoever believes in me shall not perish but have everlasting life. And he's up in heaven and now he took all these disciples and he sends them out to spread the good news that the kingdom of God is at hand. But here's the most important thing, that your soul would be saved. And this is the time of grace, saints. It's not that the kingdom isn't here. The kingdom is here. It just looks very different. The king sits on high and he's waiting to come back. Good thing he hasn't come back right now. Because many in the world of our loved ones don't know him, haven't bent the knee to him. And I'll read from 1 Thessalonians this passage of what it's going to look like. Because here's the news. The kingdom of God is here. It was inaugurated. There's a difference between inaugurated and consummated. Inaugurated means it started. Consummated means it's finished. It's still going on. Right now we're in the process of him bringing in saints through grace by hearing the gospel. But there's a time where it's going to be consummated. He's going to come back. And he's not coming in grace and gentleness like he came the first time. He's coming in wrath and power. Second Thessalonians declares this. It says, the Lord Jesus, when he is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, will inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer. So those who have not bent the knee to Christ or obeyed his gospel, they will suffer punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord, away from his glorious mind. That's an awful day. It's a great day for us when the kingdom comes in fullness, right? But it's an awful day for those who have not bent the knee. Therefore, now is the time of grace where this message freely goes to everybody, to everyone. What did Jesus say? The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. So that's the message. That should build. Do you think about the kingdom like that? The kingdom is here, but right now our king is up in heaven. He's still present through his spirit and through his word and through his church. And right now, the kingdom, the mission of the kingdom is to preach the gospel. But that kingdom is coming back. It can come back right now or next week or a thousand years from now. But that kingdom is coming back. And people better respond to the gospel. So that's the me message or the, the, the kingdom of God. Question for us is, do you understand the mission of Jesus? Do we understand the mission? Now, this is different. The purpose and mission is different. Purpose and mission is different. The purpose is, why do we exist? Ephesians tells us why we exist, why you exist. To glorify God. That's why you exist, why you were created. It doesn't matter what job you have, whether you're a man, you're a woman, you're a child. It doesn't matter any detail. If you are his creation, your purpose is to glorify God. This, the mission is how he wants to be glorified. He wants to be glorified by saving saints and bringing them into the kingdom. Isn't that right? Look at when Jesus comes, he says the kingdom of God is fulfilled in verse 16 and 17. He grabs these two fishermen and he says, come with me. Why? I'm going to make you fishers of men. I'm going to make, that is what Jesus is after. What does it mean to fish, to catch? What does it mean to be a fisher of men? To catch. 
This is the whole point. Here's the story starting to come. What is the purpose of this part? It's not that the kingdom's not here. The kingdom is growing. This is the season of the kingdom growing by Jesus winning souls. I was driving on my way here and I saw, as you, you do, another Christian rice house. They're amazing. If I had Buko Bucks, I would, I would hire that guy to make, build my house. He's phenomenal at what he does. It's beautiful ar architecture. I mean, God has gifted that man with the ability for that. As beautiful as it is, it won't last into eternity. Nothing that we see here will last into eternity. The scripture even says, well, what does it give a man if he gains the whole world? That's the possessions of it as well, but loses his soul. Only our souls will go on to eternity. It's not that the things of this earth don't matter, but what Jesus is after is the souls. He's going to recreate all this. We will have time for these things. You know, you remember the parable of the seed, how some seed is sown amongst the thorns? Here's the terrible thing. When the seed that's sown amongst the thorns, it says the cares of this world choke out the gospel. The cares of houses and money and pleasure and vacations and families and all these other things take priority over. But Jesus, it says in Luke 19.10, he says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. As 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul says, This saying is trustworthy and true. What? He's saying this saying is trustworthy and true. This is something you need to know. That Jesus Christ came to save sinners. That's the mission. That's the goal. It's not to take over and make this a Christian nation or any nation a Christian nation or have a Christian school board or they have a Christian uh, economy or Christian entertainment or a Christian uh, whatever. These things in these world are going to pass away. It is to save souls. It's the souls of your children, the souls of your parents, the souls of your friends, your spouse. That is where the kingdom is conquering and advancing and growing. This is the kingdom. You are the kingdom of God. It is alive and well. He has conquered your souls if you've repented and believed in him. This is what he wants. He doesn't want a government. He wants souls. He wants people that love him and worship him and follow him. The kingdom is advancing and growing. There are other duties. There's other things that we need to be, that we do. We take care of the poor. We serve the needy. We love others. We're friend to the friendless. These things are all good, but they, are, they, they serve the main mission to save souls. So if that's true, if that's what God is doing, brings us to our third point. How does he do that? If, you, if you're starting to build this picture, and I hope you are, because I want we have to start living like this, knowing that kingdom of God is here and it's coming. But the next time it comes, it's going to be bad for some people if they don't know. And our mission is to go and save these souls so that they will live forever in eternity. And Scripture is all about talking about that eternity. 1 Corinthians 1.15, if your body's wearing out, he's going to even resurrect our bodies. They are not going to continue to perish. On this earth, they will, I promise. I don't care what you do to your body. It's going to be undone. But he's going to resurrect our bodies. I took our kids on a vacation, and we went to a graveyard. And I said, look in this graveyard. There are some Christians in here. And their souls are in heaven. When a Christian dies, Scripture, uh, we understand, they're immediately in the presence of God. They're made perfect in righteousness and holiness. There's no more struggle with sin. They behold the face of God and they await the redemption of their bodies. 
That's why the gospel isn't something that just happened a while ago and it's done. The gospel, the good news, is the whole story. The gospel isn't complete yet. Jesus did the work that will guarantee the gospel, but the gospel includes the whole redoing of this creation, the redoing of our bodies, the doing away with enemy in the whole new world that we'll live in. They're, they're, God's ways are not our ways, but Paul t tells us for sure, he says, the sufferings of this age are nothing to be compared with the glory to come. And, and if, uh, I, I quoted this last time. Jim Elliott said, he is no fool that gives up what he cannot keep, things of this world, for that which he cannot lose. And he gave his life seeking to save the souls of others. So, I, so how, how do you do it? How does that actually accomplish? If that's the mission of Jesus and therefore the mission of the church and therefore the mission of you if you are a citizen of the kingdom, how does he do it? This passage really points out to all these things. It shows us that he goes in the synagogue and he starts teaching. And he teaches in such an astounding way. It's just something they've never seen. You want to know why? Because he's the Holy One of God. Even the demons recognize it. You are the Holy One of God. No wonder they are astounded at his teaching. There's never been a teaching like this, a life-giving teaching. And then he goes and he shows that he, the king is here, right? Because he shows he, he, he came like a kingdom comes. It comes and it has power over its enemies. He cast out all the demons. He, he can heal the sick. He has control over the material things. He can walk on water. He can turn a few loaves of fish into uh, thousands. He, he has control. We, we think the kingdom is not here because, man, he would have done more. He's here. He has ultimate control. It's his will that the world looks the way it is right now. Because he's not interested in transforming all these things right now. And even after he heals, which is very important and, and it's good work, and he cares about the healing of the body at times, but that's not the ultimate thing. Peter and them come and say, hey, let's, let's keep doing this. There's more healing to be done. Jesus says, I'm sorry. There's something of greater importance. I came to preach and teach. And that's what he does. He comes to preach and teach. This is a verse you need to recognize and, and, and commit to memory. Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. How are people ushered into the kingdom? They're ushered in by hearing the good news of this gospel, by hearing it that the kingdom of here is here, that we are not the king, that we have failed this king, that we have sinned against this king, that we're under his judgment, but he sent a savior and we need to bow the knee and accept his ways, accept his rules. We hear that and we repent and we believe and now we are in the kingdom. That is faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. So it's the word of God. It's the word of God that is our means, saints. We can get, have we gotten sidetracked? Have you gotten sidetracked? How do you want your neighbors to be saved, your kids to be saved? Do you think it's putting them only in the right environment, the right school, only having the right friends? How much more are you sharing the word of God with them, teaching them these sometimes difficult truths? I did this study through the book of Acts. I'll do this and then I'll bring this to a close. Book of Acts, how did the word of God spread? How did the kingdom of God spread? How were churches growing how, did, how does this church grow? Look at this. I'm going to be reading just these passages that take place and they follow Paul's acts. In the church at Antioch, Paul preached the word of God in the synagogues. He proclaimed, 
He taught them the word of God. Paul preached. Paul urged people. On the next Sabbath, he preached the word. He also, the word of the Lord spread, and others began sharing it. In Iconium, it says that he spoke the word of God in the synagogue. In Iconium, he remained there a long time, preaching the word of God. In Listeria, he, the people listened to Paul preaching. Um, in Listeria, they brought the good news to the people. In Derby, he preached the word of God to the people. In Perga, he spoke the word of God. In uh, Antioch, Paul and Barnabas remained there preaching and teaching the word of God. In Macedonia, Paul got a vision that he needs to come there and preach the word of God. In Thessalonica, as was Paul's custom, he went in and preached the word of God, just like Jesus did, just like he's going to tell Timothy to preach the word of God. And he preached the word of God. And get this, in Thessalonica, he preached the word of God. Many people came to faith through the preaching of the word of God, but some people hated it. And they grabbed uh, Paul and the, the believers and they dragged them before the rulers. And guess what they said? Their enemies said, they said, these men who are turning the world upside down have come here also and preached that word. How is the word of God turned up, the world turned upside down? By the preaching of the gospel. By the preaching of the gospel. Which brings us to, there, there's the big picture of your life. The big picture of the gospel, of the Bible. So in closing, grasp this. Do you live in the reality that the kingdom of God has come? This is a time of grace. But it's not a season that will last forever. God's grace will end for those who have rejected it. And he's coming, and next time he's coming in power and in judgment. It's a great day for us because we will be liberated. Do you live knowing that this kingdom is passing? Or do we try, are you trying to build your own kingdom here? Maybe that's why you're frustrated. Because he won't let your kingdom overrule his kingdom. Like the Tower of Babylon, he'll keep breaking it down. You will not find satisfaction in trying to build your own kingdom. Do you live as citizens of the kingdom? Do you also know that the mission, the main mission, is to save souls? That you and I are to use our resources, our time, our talents to save souls. To spread the word. Now, this might be very overwhelming for you. It's difficult. It's scary to share the word. It's scary to do this. So let me tell you this. Don't do it right now. Don't feel burdened. Remember, you don't get into the kingdom by doing this work. God isn't like, I, I brought you into the kingdom. If you don't start sharing, I'm so disappointed in you. No, you brought into the kingdom by faith in Jesus Christ. So it's not by that. But as a citizen, you, you are to be doing this. So if you feel uncomfortable, overwhelmed, that's fine. Start praying right now for those people. Start praying for people. You can do that, right? You can start praying. And then also find yourself somebody that can teach you and equip you so that you can go out with the right message of the gospel. That, that Paul, Jesus trained his disciples for two years before he sent them out. Paul trained Timothy. Paul told Timothy, find men and women and train them. Because you, you can create a lot of damage if you go out preaching the wrong message. And that's happened a lot. There is a wrong message out there of people saying, oh, the kingdom's not coming. No need to worry. The sky's not falling. And it's going to be a rude day for them. And just remember that it's the word of God that not only saves sinners, but it's the word of God that sanctifies saints. 
Cling to the Word of God. Learn the Word of God. It's not easy work. It's not, I'm sure you guys are ready for this sermon to be over. It's not always fun. But it's the Word of God. We study it. We learn it. It's our source. It's the gift that He has for us. Let us pray. Welcome to this week's edition of Island Recast. For more information on Grand Memorial Presbyterian Church or Pastor David, please go to gmpc.org. It says pastoral charge. Saints, I know this is a hard message, and there's, uh, we're like the people in John 6 where they come, and, and the crowds came, and, and Jesus spoke, and he preached, and then they said, wait, and they left. And they looked at Peter and said, Peter, are you going to leave too? And Peter didn't get it. It was hard for Peter too. But he says, where else am I going to go? You have the words to eternal life. So, so I know it's hard. But we have a Savior that laid down his life. It's also so good. And we, we're in, citizens of a kingdom that has a king that says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I will love you. I will comfort you. I, I will lift you on high when you are tired. I will be there for you. And just hold on. I know what I'm doing. I know what you're going through. I love you. So just cling to that, I pray.